south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan. This is episode 276, covering the week of August 23rd through August 27th, 2021. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. The YouTube page is great. We have lots and lots of stuff there. Of course, all of these podcasts, we're at 276. You've got all of those. Plus, you have all of our lecture videos from our conferences that we have. We have our Abbeville U, which is the material that uh, we produce these five-minute videos. They're great, and we're going to do more of those as we can come up with some funds to do them, but they're a great project. And share all that stuff around on social media. Let people know you like those videos. It's really good stuff. Also, at our webpage, don't forget to download our free mobile app. You can get the Abbeville Institute on the go simply by downloading that app. It's great because you get this podcast through it, but you can also get all the other lectures, audio lectures through it. Again, all this stuff is free of charge to you. If you download it, the app is free of charge. All the lectures are free of charge. The podcast is free of charge. The articles are free of charge, all free of charge. We do so much stuff free of charge at the Institute. So in order to keep all this going, we need your support. We exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like what we do, if you like the podcast and the website and the, and the lectures and all of those things, send us a tax deductible donation to the full extent of the law. I mean, this is... This is important for us to continue this mission. And let me tell you, to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, we are being pounded on a regular basis. The South, according to a certain segment of society, is the greatest threat to America. Not just that. It's the, great, it's the, it's the antithesis of America. It's anti-American. You actually have people, people saying these things now. The South is anti-American. It's not really even an American anymore. I mean... This is, this is the stupidity of modern American society. but So this is what we're here for, to try to counter that with intellectual resources. Also, if you've got an article you want to submit, send it our way. We've got, we've got uh, submission guidelines on the website. So if you want to send something, literature, you want to send music, you want to send visual arts, you want to send a written article, you want to send something that would be good to help explain the Southern tradition, well, consider it. I mean, we'll look at it. Um, you know, we do publish five days a week, and we're always looking for new writers. We're always looking for new people that have new ideas and new things going on. So consider that too. Also, get our merchandise. Click on that shop tab if you want our logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, we we need your support. We had a great webinar this last week on the 25th with James Ronald Kennedy. Of course, if you if you've been following the Southern movement for any amount of time in the last 30 years or so. You know the Kennedys, the Kennedy brothers, uh, James Ronald Kennedy and Walter Donald Kennedy, Ron and Don, Ronnie and Donnie Kennedy is how I know them. But uh, they wrote The South Was Right back in 1991, and it sold, I think he said in the webinar, 130,000 copies or more. I mean, this is amazing. The book has sold that many copies. And I told the story that I came across the Kennedy twins in a and not in that book, but it was um, about 1995. I was in a bookstore, and there was Why Not Freedom, and Why Not Freedom was on the shelf, and I picked it up. I was interested in politics, and I thought oh, that's pretty cool, and I took it home and read it. Now I'd never been exposed at that point 
to the Tenth Amendment, to this idea of nullification or secession, or any of these decentralist things that the Southern tradition, of course, held on to longer than any other political entity in the United States. And I thought, wow, this is great. It really opened my eyes to, um, to the, the Southern tradition and what it meant for America. And then, of course, in the South is right, is the big one. The South is Right is the book that really turned a lot. 130,000. He said in the in the in the webinar, we need we need 130 million people to have this book in order for it to really have a great impact. So 130,000 is okay. I mean, if you want, look, Shotwell Press has a new version of this, new new edition of this book out. It's been expanded. The initial book was really small. I mean, he showed it short, you know, very short uh, little book. It's now, I mean, a monster of a book because they keep adding to it, which is great. They keep putting out new editions, and that's fantastic stuff. So get the new edition from Shotwell Press. The South is right. If you go online, you go to Amazon, or you go there, and you can download the book, uh, buy it, and, of course, get it. You can get it on a, uh, you know, through your Kindle ebook format. Of course, you can get it in hardback or paperback version, hard or paperback. And I think they said they're working on an audio version. So this this webinar was great. And again, these are things that when we do these webinars, a lot of people will donate to the Institute as well. They're only $10. And that said, go to that Abbeville Academy, which we've got all the old webinars. We started, we started this in December of 2020. So now this is our, I think, ninth webinar. We've got nine of these out there. They're $15 when you purchase them after the fact because... We have to pay for some administrative fees and some things to host them where we do. So it's $15. But I mean, $15, that's just, it's, they're an hour or longer. And that's as much as you would pay for a movie ticket nowadays. I mean, now of course, you can't go to the movies, but you'd pay that. I mean, so, and you get, you get to download it and listen to it anytime you want. And all these webinars are hosted by yours truly. So if you like me doing this, then you, probably would like me doing the webinars as well. And I answer questions and do things there too. So getting them live is fantastic because, of course, you get to ask questions. You get to interact a little bit with us. And then we have our conferences. And so the summer school was our last one. I don't know if we're going to do another one, another in-person conference this year, particularly with uh, health and safety concerns. I mean, we do have to worry about that for people. Uh, but we do have these things every month. And we'll have another one in, in, uh, in September as well, the end of the month. So keep on the lookout for that. That's the email list. Give us that email address. You get a free ebook, Exploring the Southern Tradition, at abbeyvilleinstitute.org. Good stuff. So I, I want to open up talking about these webinars. We've done some really interesting webinars. Uh, we had one on music in, in July, which was fantastic. And it's unfortunate not as many people attended that as we hoped, but you can't have southern the southern tradition. You can't have these political things that we talk about. And we got into that with with um, Ron Kennedy a little bit, and you know his his big thing is political, right? So he's interested in the political side of the southern tradition, which we do here as well. But you can't have that. You can't have a solid community without culture. You got to have continuity somewhere. It has to be there. And what are the things that help? solidify that well it's music it's art it's literature it's the soft side of things that keep people together it's family it's traditions in 1860 and 61 when the south left the union when you had secession and then you had 11 states 
in the Confederacy, and of course you could say Missouri and Kentucky were there as well, when you had all those states in the Confederacy, the only two southern states that didn't go were Maryland and Delaware, and of course there were secession groups in those states. When you look at all those states, and there was some secession discussion in places like New Jersey and Pennsylvania and New York, and all that was there. This is a purely American movement. That's what something we have to understand. The idea of self-determination, of leaving the government, that is an American tradition that the South hung on to longer than anywhere else. It's a Jeffersonian view of America going all the way back to his summary view in 1774. I mean, Patrick Henry essentially was saying it you know, long before. He was saying it in 1765, right? So we have this position, this, this tradition of decentralization and self-determination. An American tradition of that. The South held on to longer. But you have all of that. They were able to do this. They were able to leave the Union because they just went home to their farm. They were independent people. Now, that didn't mean that people didn't have debt and other things like that, but they were independent people. And when you look at someone like Drew Gilpin Faust, who made a uh, a name for herself, attacking the South, essentially, here, a creation of Confederate nationalism, was this little tiny little book where essentially she said, well, the only thing holding the South together was race, their view on race. This is stupid. That wasn't true at all. And they had to create this nationalism. It didn't exist. And so during the war, you do get people that are interested in this. For example, Augusta Jane Evans, who was writing stories to try to promote a type of Southern unity. And there were people that would do this, right? I mean, this is... This is uh, understandable. You had Americans doing the same thing during the American War for Independence across the United States, doing the same thing. You could say there was no American nationalism at that point. There certainly was state nationalism. And even in the Confederacy, there was state nationalism. People did think of themselves as Virginians or Alabamians or Georgians. We still have this in the South today. I mean, this is what makes college football what it is. People in Auburn like nothing better than beating up on Georgia in a football game. Same thing goes for, uh, you know, any other rivalry. Georgia and Florida. Georgia and Florida like nothing better than beating up on each other in a football game. And then, of course, you have the interstate rivalries, which are intrastate rivalries, I should say, which are, you know, Auburn, Alabama, and Georgia, Georgia Tech, and uh, Clemson, South Carolina, Florida, Florida State. We have all of that. Texas, Texas A&M. LSU doesn't really have that. Of course, they've got Arkansas. They like nothing better than beating up on each other, too. Right? So that's a fun thing. In Tennessee, you got Tennessee, Florida, Tennessee, Georgia, Tennessee, Auburn, Tennessee, Alabama. I mean, Tennessee against all these. So you've got all of that. You still have these interstate in interstate robberies and then intrastate robberies, but interstate robberies are still big because Southerners still love their states. And you see it in the North too. I mean, you've got Michigan, Ohio State, but you got to remember a lot of that, in a lot of ways, you know, Virginia populated the West, and so they brought that provincialism with them. But Yankees had it too. They, they, they had a provincialism too, uh, certainly. But these people just went home. And so this idea of home, home, 
what that means to the South, that idea of home and place and community. And we started the week this week with a piece by Casey Chalk, and I really enjoyed it. The title of it was Staying Home. And he talks about this transiency in America, and he brings us back into music. To music. Now, of course, he's from Northern Virginia. And he's looking at what's happening in Northern Virginia. It's a disaster. And that's where I was born as well. And so he and I have that connection. We've talked a lot about um, where we're from. He's, he's younger than me. But, and so he doesn't remember exactly like I do. But, I mean, I still remember a little bit of Northern Virginia before it exploded what it is. Of course, you know, my, my, my family does remember what it was like before that. They live there. Uh, my oldest brother tells a story about going to get, trying to find a dentist in Northern Virginia. It was in the guy's basement. Uh, and there was no, I mean, you had to drive out in the country to go get to this thing. So, I mean, it was still there. Uh, it's that uh, old South was still there in Northern Virginia. It's gone now. I mean, the general government expansion in Northern Virginia has destroyed all of that. This is why you're seeing all of the changes in Virginia, because it can, because all these people come in, and, and Casey Chalk has talked about this in some other writings and some other publications, namely the American Conservative, where he said, look, I mean, People move into Virginia and, oh, they have hushed. Well, I mean, you have Confederate statues here. You, have con- you, you celebrate Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. Well, I don't know. That might hurt some people's feelings. I don't know if we can do that. Well, I mean, when all these people come in and they vote, that changes everything. But he says, Americans have a weird relationship with their roots. Most folk want to be from somewhere, but they often don't want to be in that somewhere. As someone who has an unusual, unusually old roots in Northern Virginia, perhaps one of the most transient parts of the country, I think I might witness this more than most. Few people who live in Northern Virginia want to stay here. They come for the jobs, do their 20 or 30 years of federal service, and then depart for greener or more typically sandier pastures. They proudly fought paraphernalia from their home state on their vehicles and place little garden flags from their alma maters in their front yard. They complain about how terrible Northern Virginia is, the cost of living, the traffic, the, its transient nature, they often fail to see the irony of that last one and brag about their home states. Californians are insufferable with this. Yeah, Californians. Californians. Now, let's talk about California for a minute. There are a lot of Southerners that moved into California. And my, my grandparents lived in California uh, in the 1950s and early 60s. And they got out in the late 60s, and I remember them talking about how bad California got. But they loved it. They loved California. They loved California. It was very conservative when they lived there and the parts they lived in. And a lot of Southerners moved out there. And so they made California very Southern for a long time. And then, of course, that eroded right over time. But California is now, how would a Californian today be proud of what that state has become. It's a cesspool. Of course, I also get it. Job opportunities in much of America are limited. People get wanderlust and want to experience something different. And then, after a honeymoon period in a new place, they grasp how much they miss their home state or town. Sometimes the nostalgia gets saccharine and absurd. Absurd. A lot of people in Northern Virginia with no agricultural background talk about wanting to farm, largely oblivious to its realities. My 98-year-old grandmother escaped an impoverished Kansas farm hit by the Dust Bowl, so my views are a bit less romantic. I mean, farming is hard, right? So 
that romantic vision of farming. It's not always easy. But we do have people that are affiliated with the Institute who love farming, right? I mean, they, they love the farm. And uh, that's part of the Southern tradition that we try to explore, the agricultural, the agrarian. The tension seems so deeply embedded in the human condition, I'm not sure we could ever get rid of it. We know that place grounds and defines us, but we grow tired of it, need to explore, to feel the exotic. Then as we grow older and disenchanted with the dissatisfying, incomplete, salvific qualities of the, of the novel, the old place calls to us, and we realize, perhaps a little like, bit like the prodigal son, that our departure was in some senses an insult to our patrimony and inheritance. We yearn to rush back, hopeful that it will be the same, though usually it's not. And he talks about music then and how it does that. And, um, and he gets into the end, you know, that uh, we have these situations in Northern Virginia where they're going to rename all manners of streets, schools, and communities that are now perceived to be racist or patriarchal. Is anyone surprised given how many transplants live in Northern Virginia who could care less about local heroes like John Singleton Mosby, the Great Ghost? Sometimes the exodus can simply be leaving the comforts of one's own home and fighting for one's community in that very community. That's a good point. Sometimes, say that again, the exodus can simply be leaving the comforts of one's own home and fighting for one's community in that very community. And this is something that Ron Kennedy brought up. You have to create your own institutions. You have to get involved in the local. You have to do it. The Abbeville Institute is not a political action group. We don't, we don't endorse candidates. We don't say this candidate. I mean, we, we bash all, all politicians at times. We're here to provide the intellectual ammunition you need to do these things. When someone says the war was all about slavery, well, we've given you article after article after article to try to refute that. When someone says, what is a summer Southern tradition? We've given you article after article after article. Now, maybe we don't always do a good job of connecting all the dots, and we're going to try to work on some of those things, particularly for younger people who are bombarded on a regular basis with these negative connotations of the South. Bombarded with it. I mean, it's awful. What we really need, and I was speaking with a friend of mine the other day, I wish we could get people of all ideological backgrounds, leftists, conservatives, who just love the South, black, white, who just love what it means. It means home to them, and what it means in all the traditions, all the good, all the bad, and that they just want to defend it because it is what it is. You see, the left is parasitic. It's cancerous. It comes in, the, the overarching Yankee left in particular, not, not Southern leftists who for a long time were these old conservative Democrats. We've got people that support the Institute who are those people. This old conservative Democrats or you know, Southern Democrats, and uh, they like some things. You know, They like some stuff that the you know, central government needs to do a few things. They need to help people. You hear that? It needs to help people. Help people out. And Southerners embraced that for a long time. But what they don't, what's happening with that, though, is the North still controls us, and the cultural elites in the North are then grinding down everything in the South. And these people need to understand we need to take that into our own hands and say, enough, no, you're not going to do this. I don't care if you don't like it, it's ours. 
We don't tell you to take down your stupid statues. We don't tell you to take down your stupid songs. Oh, wait, you don't really have any. We don't tell you your culture is wrong and backwards and everything else. I love the exchange years ago when Robert Kennedy and Sam Irvin were going at it. And Robert Kennedy got up there and started talking about illiteracy rates in the South and how a lot of it was due to large African-American communities and Southerners were oppressing these people. And so when Irvin came back, it's great. When Irvin came back, he listed all the illiterate people in Massachusetts and did this right to Kennedy's face, listed all this, the percentage of illiterate people, and most of them are white. And he said, look, I'm not going to say that Massachusetts is oppressing white people in, in the state, but here are your illiteracy numbers. And they were high, right? They were high. So this, what we do is we get involved in these faux arguments. White Southerners, black Southerners, left Southerners, right Southerners need to join in their simple love of place and identity of Southerners. John Singleton Mosby is great. All Southerners should support him because he was Southern. Same thing with Robert E. Lee. He's ours. Another friend of mine said, you know, the, the motto of Alabama should be Alabama. If you don't like it, go home. Right? It's ours. If you want to move down here, fine. But you got to live like you're from here. Not like you're from Massachusetts and you're trying to tell everybody else what to do because that's what Yankees do. You don't want to come down here and boss people around. You need the soft to understand the politics which is why we do so much with the culture. Now, the politics is, is interesting, right? And all these great heroes, military stuff, political stuff, we talk about a lot of that. I mean, look, Jefferson and Calhoun and Lee and Jefferson Davis. I mean, you go down the line. We could, we could do this with the nationalists. John Marshall, for example, and George Washington. John Marshall and George Washington would not have been who they are if they weren't from Virginia. Now, Marshall less than Washington. But certainly, Washington would not have been George Washington had he been from Massachusetts. I guarantee it. Or had he been from Pennsylvania or New York. He was great because of the culture and the traditions that he was reared in. By his mother, primarily. That's what made George Washington great. It wasn't some ideology. At all. It was people. It was his brother. It was his mother. It was his place. And so as Casey Chalk says, what we yearn for is home. Certainly our spiritual eternal home as Ralph Stanley and many other country and bluegrass singers would tell us. But also a home that we know that is familiar to us and reminds us of who we are and where we came from. That's very Bradford-esque, remembering who we are. A home that tells us to stop trying to reinvent ourselves and accept who we are and all of our imperfection. Wherever we were born, raised, schooled, the places have left an indelible print imprint even in this impermanent 21st century America. It's true. He ends with a set of lyrics from the Stanley Brothers song, How Mountain Girls Can Love, and it says, get, get down, boys, go back home, back to the girl you love, treat her right, never wrong, how mountain girls can love. 
And speaking of music, of course, we've continued our series with Tom Daniel, makes this musician great, Carl Perkins. I, Carl Perkins, I didn't realize this when, uh, when before I read this, and I was doing a little, just looking into Carl Perkins. He had a terrible accident in Delaware, Delaware of all places. Nobody drives through Delaware unless you absolutely have to. But he was driving this little town in Delaware. A lot of people don't realize Delaware has a lot of, it's a farming community, a lot of farms in Delaware, a lot of people that just are good people, farmers. Very rural state. And he was driving through this rural road in 1954, and he got he hit a pickup truck. The driver of the pickup truck was killed. Uh, they hit the back end of it, and he was almost killed. His brother was killed. But Carl Perkins could have been Elvis Presley. And he gets into this rockabilly music, which is just so good, so much fun. And so many musicians have said there would have been no band, XYZ band, without rockabilly and Carl Perkins. There would have been no Elvis in some ways without Carl Perkins. I mean, Elvis was already getting big, but Elvis needed Carl Perkins out of the way, as this piece points out. He needed him out of the way so so, Carl, so Elvis could become Elvis. But they're both part and parcel of the South. And again, this is the soft stuff that we need to understand about the South and Southern tradition. The music is important. The Irish for years were able to hang on their own communities because they wrote their own songs and they had their own music. That's what made Ireland so interesting because they had the soft, they had the literature, they had the music, and that's what held them together, and they had that shared history. The problem in America now is that that shared history in the South is being disparaged by the educational elites, which of course filters down into the educational community, and... It's being disparaged by the media and everything else. It used to not be that way. This is where the Kennedys talk about, you know, 1970s. We've done it here when, when being Southern was cool. When Hank Williams Jr., you know, had several songs about being Southern and what that meant. Thank God the New South is still the same. The New South is still the same, and I'm so proud of it. I don't want, don't want those little old Danish rolls. I must have ham and grits. Right? So, I mean, everything, but the South stayed the same. But that stuff is important. And it's also important to remember, as we talk about in this week, some great Southerners, Robert Louis Dabney and his theological positions. We had a good piece by Forrest Marion on Dabney. Dabney and Thornwell and so many other Religious figures in the South, so important for modern evangelicalism. And unfortunately, in their own states and their own church, their own churches, they're being shunned because, of course, they held views on race that don't comport with modern society. The answer to that is, so what? Not that we hold those views ourselves, but did they not have valuable things to say about American society, about theology? Were they not prescient thinkers, philosophers? Did they not have good things to say about those? If we're going to denounce people that held views that we don't hold today, well, then you're going to wholesale get rid of an entire and generations and generations of people. In fact, just about anyway before 1970. And that is the goal of the left. Don't get me wrong. This is exactly what they want to do, and that's why they're so dangerous. So we had a really great piece on Dabney by Forrest Marion, a book review, in fact, 
The uh, book is Our Comfort in Dying. It's a, it's a uh, from a small publisher, Solified Publications, edited by Jonathan Peters. And Forrest Marion's a good writer, and um, you know, this, is, this is a nice piece. And then we had two interesting pieces in the last part of the week. The first is Jefferson Davis on slavery and the territories. A series of quotes shows that Davis uh, essentially was interested in expansion of slavery because he thought it would serve as a safety valve, so to speak, and that it would help to end slavery. As Obar points out in this piece, Davis's arguments eventually turns into a righteous cause mythbuster. Instead of advocating for the extension of slavery to propagate the institution, as the popular myth proclaims, Davis argues that government prohibition of slavery in the territory stifles the progress of emancipation. He explains how diffusion of slavery over sparser regions reduces the number of slaves to a manageable level so that emancipation can take place without inconvenience, danger, or serious loss. Quote, All property is best managed where governments least interfere, and the practice of our government has been generally founded on that principle. What has been the progress of emancipation throughout the whole of history of our country? It has been the pressure of free labor upon the less profitable slave labor until the slaves were transferred to sparser regions, and their number by such transfer was reduced to a limit at which, without inconvenience or danger or serious loss, emancipation of the few who remained might occur. As was the case with both Calhoun and Stevens in earlier days, Davis expresses why the South defends slavery not in the abstract, but as it exists in its current situation, a situation created by the North in its attempt to keep all blacks on a reservation in the South. And once again, he champions slavery in the territories as a means of enabling emancipation, denouncing the North's hypocritical opposition to slavery there as having the opposite effect. So, I mean, this is a really good piece because he pulls this stuff out and uh, you don't hear this stuff about Jefferson Davis. He was just a Confederacy, pro-slavery. Look at what he's saying here. This is 1850 when he's saying this. But it's an important argument. And then we concluded the week with a chapter of a new book. Um, the Last Words, The Farewell Addresses of Union and Confederate com Commanders to Their Men at the End of the War Between the States by Michael Bradley. It's an excerpt from that book, and it has Forrest, Nathan Bedford Forrest's farewell to his men, which was issued May 9th, 1865. And Forrest was into reconciliation. I mean, Forrest is often portrayed as this guy who wasn't interested in reconciliation. He was. And this is an interesting letter. I mean, it's not something that you would think that Forrest would write. He concludes... He says, a civil war such as you have passed through naturally engenders feelings of animosity, hatred, and revenge. It is our duty to, to divest ourselves of all such feelings. And as far as it is in our power to do so, to cultivate friendly feelings towards those with whom we have so long contended and heretofore so widely but honestly differed. Neighborhood feuds, personal animosities, and private differences should be blotted out. And when you turn home, a manly, straightforward course of conduct will secure the respect of your enemies. Whatever your responsibilities may be to government, to society, or to individuals, meet them like men. This is reconciliation. That's not what the left wants anymore. They don't want any of that. Here's Forrest saying, put it down, put, I mean, 
put down the gun and say, we'll work with you. The attempt made to establish a separate and independent confederation has failed. That's what the point of the war was. It's now failed. But the consciousness of having done your duty faithfully and to the end will, in some measure, repay for the hardships you have undergone. Having done your duty, this is about duty and honor and country, faithfully. He concludes with this. I have never, on the field of battle, sent you where I was unwilling to go myself. Nor would I now advise you to a course which I felt myself unwilling to pursue. You have been good soldiers. You can be good citizens. Obey the laws. Preserve your honor. And the government to which you have surrendered can afford to be, and will be, magnanimous. If only that was still the case. If only that was still the case. But in 1865, Forrest certainly hoped so. And that really is the basis of reconciliation. Which is what? All of this really is what the attack on the South is about today. It's about ending this truce, this reconciliation. It has to be done away with. And the left would look at that and say, yeah, but he was a, he was head of the Klan. No evidence. As this piece gets into, there's no evidence that Forrest was ever the head of the Klan. In fact, there was a, a book that came out called Ku Klux recently that said the same. It's written by a leftist. said the same thing. Yeah, Forrest, I mean, you can't really find it. In fact, her conclusion is, that the Klan was in many ways a fabrication of the North. It was kind of a boogeyman they created to try to, to, try to uh, aim some vitriol at the South so they could get what they want politically. It's not that some things didn't happen. She's not saying that, and I, no one would ever say that. But that it was in some ways a creation of the Northern press, which is an interesting argument. And again, she's a leftist Northerner writing this, not someone from the South. Okay, so I try to keep these things at 30 minutes. A lot of great stuff this week. Get, the, get in those webinars, support the Institute, do what you can. Share this podcast around on social media, rate it where you get your podcast. Let people know you're listening to it. And until next time, good day. Mm-hmm.